It's great to welcome to the program today Eric Kaufman, who is professor of politics at Birkbeck University of London in the UK, also author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities. Uh, Eric, great to have you on today. Great to be here, David. So let's I mean, how what's the best way when someone doesn't know about the discussions that are taking place in political circles and anthropological circles in many circles about the future of race divisions or, or sort of the racial makeup of modern Western countries, including the United States? What is the kind of top line change that we're seeing and what we expect racial makeup to look like in 25 and 50 years? Well, many many Americans are, are obviously familiar with the figure of roughly um, half of Americans uh, won't be non-Hispanic whites around 2050. That's that's been known for a while. Less well known is that something similar will occur uh, around the same time in Canada and New Zealand. Uh, the changes in Canada, which is where I'm originally from, um, are actually quite dramatic. Some Statistics Canada demographers showed that in 2006, the population was about 80% white, 20% minority. And then by 2106, 100 years later, the, the proportions are, are more or less reversed. Kind of gives you, a, now Canada is one of the faster moving countries, but it gives you a sense of the changes we're, we're really only now embarking on and that we're really going to reverberate. Uh, around the West. In Europe, it will be towards the end of the century, at, at least in Western Europe, that the majority-minority point will, will arrive. But this is, these are just a, a sense of a set of quite monumental shifts that are going to change our politics in great ways. So what has been the uh, sort of political reaction as people learn about this coming change across countries? I mean, I know that in the United States, there's definitely a right wing element that sees this as evidence that whites are or soon will be an oppressed minority. Potentially, this leads to arguments about what immigration policy should be. It stems and connects stems from and connects to a lot of other sort of policy issues. But is there some general way in which this shift is being sort of interpreted by left and right wing elements of the different countries you mentioned? Yeah, I think that there is a general pattern. The the response amongst conservatives is one of identity threat, I think, which is what's fundamentally driving um, right-wing populism, I think, across Europe and also in the US and elsewhere. I think on the left, there is an element of the left that is sort of seizing upon this as a sort of signal or harbinger that some kind of new society is is emerging and it's sort of embold, emboldening a kind of multicultural what i would think is almost a millenarian view of, of the new society that's going to emerge sort of diverse and equal um and i think you've got a clash of these two visions that's taking place and so part of this is not just the rise of right-wing populism but also uh, value polarization as these visions clash can you talk about that a little bit when you say value polarization uh, I think most people understand what values are and they understand polarization. But what what are we talking about more specifically when values become polarized? Yeah, essentially what we know from political psychology is that there are sort of deep rooted dispositions that people have um, put bluntly. Essentially, some people prefer diversity, difference, change. Other people prefer order, continuity the present to be like the past, that that is sort of between a third and a half heritable. If we look at the literature on psychological authoritarianism or status quo conservatism by people like Karen Stenner, uh, 
Um, and what this means, therefore, is that as we see these demographic shifts, they're going to be processed very differently by people who are psychologically more conservative and those who are more, uh, you know, open to change or who score high on something like the, the big five trait of openness to experience. So what we're seeing then is this divide. Some have called it open-closed. Some have called it somewheres, anywheres. Uh, that cultural value divide is reordering politics. It's splitting political parties that were initially uh, formed on the basis of left versus right, which are economic orientations around lower tax, more redistribution, that that older economic cleavage in politics is being overlaid by this stronger kind of open-closed type cleavage. Yeah. Um, uh, Jonathan Haidt has some interesting work along these lines uh, as, as well, who he's probably the, the person who I've read most recently on these ideas of values. Now, do the values carry? So let's back up a little bit. There have been a lot of discussions that I've had on the program about how at face value, it doesn't necessarily correlate that a political contingent that is for low taxes would necessarily also be against abortion, for example and worried about so-called oppression against whites as a result as a result of demographic shifts. Like it doesn't appear that there is anything obvious that is sort of weaving those positions together into a defined political constituency. But is there actually something sort of underneath the surface that does inform why those political positions end up sort of as part of the same voting block or, or is there not? Well, yeah, you can get ideological construction whereby positions which probably don't necessarily align on the sort of psychological level such as free markets and restricted immigration it's not obvious that those two things uh, go together at all but you will have an, an ideological package that's created by a right-wing political party or a left-wing political party they will yoke together things that may not fit either philosophically or psychologically what I would say, however, is that the pressures from these sort of psychological values groups can reconfigure parties. So far right parties in Europe, which used to be more low tax, have shifted more in the direction of uh, welfare state, welfare protectionism. Even in the U.S., you saw that one of the big predictors of Trump support as, as opposed to support for other primary candidates was actually a relatively uh, more liberal attitude to things like Medicare. Um, so that sort of economically slightly to the left, uh, but culturally very concerned about immigration, that group fractured the Republican Party to some extent. So I think even though, yes, parties do provide these menus of options, which are in many ways uh, don't fit together very well, you can get these movements that fracture that and create new orientations amongst the parties. So yeah, it's partly about how the uh, political actors slot into and fit into these dispositions. I mean, so you could have imagined it could be war on terror. That could be mobilizing that that sort of um, order-seeking disposition amongst uh, voters. But then when the war on terror or the Cold War fades, another division might be mobilized. It might be the border, for example. Um, so there are different ways of plugging into these dispositions. The dispositions are somewhat nonspecific. One thing we know, however, is certainly immigration attitudes are heavily, uh, extremely heavily correlated with these value dispositions. I mean, I've looked at British and U.S. data and uh, views on, for example, the death penalty, views on whether things in, let's say, things in America were better in the past, especially American culture was better in the past. That has a very, very strong link to immigration attitudes. So I think it's these kind of psychological dispositions which 
uh, underlie the immigration attitudes which underlie the sort of populist politics and the polarization. The polarization also arises when the kind of left liberal side reacts to the populist right side and thinks they are morally retrograde. Uh, and there's, I think, a whole debate there, but that reaction to the rise of the populist right then provides, in addition to people responding differently to the stimulus of diversity, you also have this value division over, is it even legitimate to have a conversation about restricting immigration? Um, so that adds just another layer to this polarizing dynamic. It's, it's most extreme in America, but we saw in the European elections recently that in Europe, both populist right and the green and liberal parties uh, scored better than they ever have. So that's kind of suggesting Europe is kind of moving in that polarizing direction. So, Eric, when it comes to the possible uh, grievances that one could have um, sort of under the umbrella of right wing populism with this racial shift that we are, are starting to see with the idea of possibly losing status, which we know was a great motivator for some Trump voters in 2016. If you had to sort of steel man as much as possible to make the best possible case that some or one of those grievances is sort of backed in historical realities or empirical realities, do, do any of those grievances stand up? I actually think they do. And this may be a place we might disagree is, is I think that there's a real difference in the survey data, for example, and in the psychological literature between um, hatred of outgroups, kind of racism and attachment to own group. Um, now, attachment to own group can also lead to racism if it leads you to discriminate. But I think there's an important distinction there. So people can be attached to being uh, a member of, of an ethnic majority group like white American or white British. Um, they can be attached to uh, a particular configuration of nationhood with a ethnic majority and minority groups, but with a particular um, share for each and want to conserve that. So that's kind of a conservative orientation based on attachment, which is, I think, different from fearing or hating an outgroup or wanting to oppress an outgroup or wanting to keep power. Um, so I think that's sort of how I would, would state a lot of the impetus. Now, of course, there are racists in, you know, amongst the populist right voters, there clearly are going to be people who simply, you know, hate Muslims or, or hate uh, Hispanics or whatever. They're, yes, uh, there are. Yeah. So, so <laughs> absolutely. But there's also, we know from, certainly from Ashley Jardina's work, for example, on white identity politics, a lot of voters, for example, uh, white Americans who feel warmer towards whites do not feel cooler towards blacks, let's say, or Hispanics than whites who don't particularly feel warm towards whites. So the warmth towards one's own group doesn't correlate with hostility to the outgroup. And I think a lot of there are a lot of people who are attached to their own group or attached to their own way of life. And it's not that different, actually, from African-Americans in Harlem attached to Harlem's African-American majority. And so the question is what we do about that, I think. Well, before clearly, we even get to what to do about it, I mean, that, let me make sure I understand that, because this is an interesting point. Right. If, I, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that you can sort of rank people based on the level of attachment they have to their group. So, for example, we can take white people in the United States or as they like to call them, European call themselves in some groups, European Americans, so to speak that you might have one cohort that has significant sort of attachment and pride connected to being a white American and another cohort which has less pride or attachment to being a white American, but that both of those groups would end up having a sort of statistically similar 
feeling towards other groups like uh, black Americans or Hispanic Americans or whoever that in other words, the level of attachment to your group is not necessarily zero sum when compared to your feeling towards other groups. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's quite different, say, from partisan identity, where if you're a conservative and you're attached to being conservative, you have a cooler feeling towards liberals. So that's much more of a, a zero sum type of identity. I guess where it becomes politically relevant is while that may be correct me if I'm wrong, while at the sort of large scale uh, uh, in the aggregate that may be my sense is and maybe there is data to back this up that those who choose to become activists around keeping the country white are probably skewed on one side of those results in terms of how they feel towards those in the out group versus those who say, you know, my choice of activism is not going to be around keeping the country white. It's going to be around, for example, increasing access to health care. I'm guessing that there you would see some dividing lines in terms of feelings towards out groups. Yeah, I mean, I think in the sort of radical segments like the KKK, you definitely would have uh, you know, high white identity and, and strong hostility to outgroups, yes. But I think that, that the I would caution against simply dismissing the conservative element. I mean, it's not so different from wanting to conserve, you know, a historic building or historic landmarks or a way of life. I mean, that is going to get expressed somehow. And I think it would be better to talk about how quick should we have this rate of cultural change? How can the majority adapt? One of the things that I say in my book is, if majorities can uh, be more open to intermar interracial marriage and, and adopting of mixed race people into their group, this is a way forward. Because I think you have to give the ethnic majority a vision of itself in the future. If it's just about you're the bad old past, you're toxic, you got to decline. I don't think that's going to. I think that's going to lead to more polarization. So I think talking about melting the group maintaining itself through through interracial marriage, I think, is one one way forward. I know that's not going to be accepted by all members. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like to some degree you're saying that there needs to be some level of appeasement, at least of the fear that is there, regardless of what it is that is motivating that fear, that from a pragmatic standpoint, which I like to try to take with a lot of these issues, that just saying, hey, this is the way it's going to be and that's it is not a good path forward from a pragmatic perspective, but that some degree of appeasement, and I don't use that word in a negative way, is a, a probably a positive thing. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it appeasement so much as a kind of reassurance and not, not so much about, I'm not convinced that it's about fear of loss of power so much. I mean, you, if you look at Europe, where these groups are more dominant in terms of, you know, 90% of the population, it's not really about that as much as I think a loss of this attachment to the way things were, the country they knew growing up, it's not the country they recognize anymore. That kind of, kind of psychological dissonance uh, is more the, the issue. And I think one way of kind of getting around that is to talk through how uh, the consciousness, the myths of ancestry traditions can continue through, uh, through a mixed race population as well, which I'm, I'm arguing that these white majorities will become over time, the kind of Beijing, to use Mike Lynn's term. I think stigmatizing these groups and trying to sort of frame them as the past and as something we have to supersede, that's been a mistake amongst some progressive actors. So I think I would prefer it to be a more uh, conciliatory move that allows each group to kind of have its identity rather than trying to toxify one uh, identity.
Very, very interesting stuff. We've been speaking with Professor Eric Carr.